verses 49 to 39. Jesus is speaking. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against a son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, oh, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As, you go, as you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Well, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the tower in Salomon fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for the fruit on it but did not find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've come looking to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. And then I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. And if not, then cut it down. Well, good morning again. You'll find sermon outline uh, on the notes that you would have received at the door. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that uh, relationships can be fairly hard. Yes, even friendships can be strained, close relationships uh, can break. And what we find is so often just the little things build up over time, don't they? And under the residue of life, 
relationships can fracture. Now, this man uh, has recently had a, a movie released about him. Uh, you might know the song. I'm not going to ask you to sing along, and I'm definitely not going to sing it for you. Uh, sorry seems to be the hardest word. What have I got to do to make you want me? What have I got to be, do to be heard? What do I say when it's all over? And sorry seems to be the hardest. I can see tears down your cheeks at the moment. You feel the pain, eh? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. We might actually agree. I don't know. Are you good at saying sorry? Are you good at saying sorry? Uh, Bitter experience might tell you that this is true. But often things get in the way of us actually acknowledging fault. And sometimes we can uh, do what my wife would say I hopefully have trained myself out of, uh, the sorry but, uh, you know, sorry but there's a reason why actually it's not really as big an issue as you think it is. Uh, So uh, I've repented of that, so that's my confession for this morning. Okay, Uh, saying sorry can be really, really difficult. But I would like to suggest that repentance is a gift It is something that transforms life, not just in our relationship with God, but as we get that right, it actually overflows and transforms human relationships. It actually liberates us. So how do we learn? How do we find what we need in order to say sorry? And I'd like to warn you this morning, That sorry isn't actually the hardest word. There is another word, but you're going to have to wait to the end of the sermon and pay attention all that time to hear it. We're going to explore this whole topic from Jesus' teaching that Val read for us just then. Four headings. They're there on the notes. Knowing the time, acknowledging the need, recognizing the urgency, and then the gift of repentance. Okay, let's dive in. When you think of Jesus, and we've been working through Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 12 and Luke chapter 13, so often we have a picture of Jesus that looks a little bit like this. Yes? There was a church that I used to work in that had a a framed uh, painting of Jesus, and Jesus was wearing this lovely pastel blue robe, and there were little lambs frolicking around his feet. We have that image of Jesus so often. Yes? Here, I didn't have to search very hard on the internet to find this one. Uh, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. How does that mesh with the first verse of Jesus' teaching that Val read for us? I have come, Jesus says, to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. I have come to bring fire on the earth. Does, does that fit with the Jesus that you know? Are you comfortable with this? Because fire is this Old Testament image. We get it, don't we? If you've ever lived through bushfires, you know that it is terrifying, but it is an image from the Old Testament of God's judgment. Jesus is saying, I have come to bring judgment and I wish it was already falling. Is that the Jesus that you have? 
we don't like judgment. As a society, I think we're becoming increasingly adverse to judgment. One of the, uh, the, the greatest criticisms one of the younger generation can pay is to tell you that you're, you're, you're being a bit judgy. You know, thou shalt not judge is the number one criteria, the one number one rule that we have. We're told to live and let live. And if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we actually see that Jesus tells us not to judge. But what Jesus is getting at there is that kind of nitpicky attitude that pushes others down to lift yourself up. Here, Jesus is saying something very different. So why does Jesus crave it? Why does Jesus say, I have come to bring fire, to bring judgment, and I wish it was now? Because judgment, judgment falling on the earth means an end to evil. It means an end to suffering. It means an end to injustice, to sickness, and to pain. Justice, judgment falling, means sin ends. Now, we don't, we don't crave God's judgment because I don't think we see the seriousness of sin. Only if we're on the receiving end, and then I don't think we still see it as deeply as Jesus sees it. I don't think our hearts cry out with his that says, how I wish it were already fallen. Because we don't see sin as serious as God does. Imagine you walk uh, into the Louvre in France. You've gone there to see uh, perhaps one of the greatest pieces of art produced by Western civilization, uh, the Mona Lisa. And there you walk in and there she is and someone's got the art liner out and they've kind of added a few things. Are you cool about this? Are you happy about this? Are you thinking, oh yeah, it's a bit of an improvement actually. She was looking a bit judgy perhaps and now she looks more relaxed and casual and the beard suits her really you don't you think someone's taken an art liner to the Mona Lisa like the outrage that would be there would be astounding you may recall the the outrage across the world when ISIS took uh explosives to the world heritage listed uh Pamploma I think it is in the Middle East the town, the city, the ancient city that they blew up. You may recall in Afghanistan, there were the Buddha's statues uh, that the Mujahideen detonated. Remember the outrage, creation, heritage, destroyed. Imagine when it's yours. Imagine you'd perhaps um, tried a bit of woodcrafting. And you'd carved out this wonderful table. Magnificent textured through the grain. Looks amazing. And then you come in and someone has carved their name into the tabletop. How, how do you feel? Now the scripture tells us that God created everything. That we are in his image. 
that God, by his command, by his word, called everything into being. And sin, effectively, is carving obscenities across his creation. Taking something that is incredibly dear to him, something that he loves, and scarring it. Jesus is the creator. He is the word of God through whom God created all things. He looks and sees creation damaged, willfully damaged, and he wants to set it straight. That is why Jesus is so keen about judgment. And Jesus starts teaching them. He tells them that judgment starts now. Because judgment effectively is division. Every time you go to the shops, you walk through the grocers. You know, you pick this apple and not that apple. You know, you don't have the grocer saying, don't be so judgy. You're being judgy. You're discerning which one you want and which one you don't. Which one is going to be in your groceries when you go home and which one you're going to leave on the shelf. Judgment is division. And Jesus tells us that division starts now. Do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, Jesus says, but division Now on there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why? Because of Jesus. And some of us know this. We know this intimately. We know what it is to have family reject us Because of the name of Jesus. We know this acutely. The criteria for judgment comes down to the answer of the question, who do you say I am? And Jesus says in his ministry, people are saying, like Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are God's promised king. And the people who say that are divided over against the people who will not acknowledge it. Judgment starts with Jesus. And Jesus actually tells them they should have spotted it. They lived in the Mediterranean. If the cloud rises in the west, there's the Mediterranean Sea. It's going to rain. The wind comes from the south out of the desert. It's going to be hot. They can pick the weather. But they can't pick what is happening. They won't pick what is happening, but Jesus is saying, judgment is coming and you need to get ready. He gives a little illustration of the guy being dragged before the magistrate. And he says, quick, you've still got time to sort it out. Reconcile with your adversary before you get before the judge because it's too late. Because the judge hands you to the officer, the officer throws you in prison and you will not get out, he says until you have paid the very last coin, until you pay everything that you owe. Jesus is saying he has come to bring judgment and there is time to make sure you are okay with the judge, but know the time. We've also got to acknowledge the need because 
I think for most of us, when we think about people fronting up before the judge, it's not nice people like us, is it? It's always those other people. And so you have Jesus there and um, someone in the crowd calls out and says, you know, Jesus, did you hear about the Galileans? You know, the ones that Pilate killed while they were offering their sacrifices. Now, if you know anything about Pontius Pilate, uh, we don't know about this specific encounter other than these words, uh, but this is entirely consistent with the behaviour of Pontius Pilate. He was a violent man. But here he's done something that worth some mention to Jesus. Did you hear about those people killed as they offered their sacrifices? And Jesus says, yes. And those others whom the Tower of Siloam fell upon, did you hear about them? Jesus adds, because you know what? They're, in Jeru- they're talking about the Galileans. And it's easy to think that the Galileans maybe deserve something. Jesus gives them an example of the Judeans, the people in Jerusalem. And he's saying, you know what? Do you think they're worse sinners than all the others? Do you think they're more deserving of God's judgment than all the others? It was a pretty common view that bad things happen to bad people. And so if you're sitting comfy, God's giving you the thumbs up. That was the view. They raised the Galileans. But do you think they were worse sinners? Jesus raises the people whom the tower fell upon. Do you think they were worse sinners? It's always someone else. Jesus says, no, it's you. Do we see that? Do we think of ourselves before the judge? Or is it always someone else? Now, we live in a society, interestingly enough, while they've turned away from God largely, they've become increasingly moralistic. Have you noticed that? The language around, I'm not going to pick sides here, I'm not going to name issues, but you pick the issue. The language is not just, I disagree with you, and it's not even just, you're wrong. It's actually, you're bad. Our culture has reinvented sin. But it's always the other people. It's never ourselves. But Jesus disagrees. He says this, I tell you no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. He's saying the Galileans, not just those killed, all of them. The people in Jerusalem, not just those the tower fell on, all of them. He's saying to the crowds, all of you, and he says to us, all of us. Jesus doesn't split the categories. It's not the us and them. He says it's everyone under judgment. There's an interesting uh, historical figure by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, I've bought his book. It's my... uh, traveling companion on my next holiday you might think 
hey, that sounds exciting. Uh, but Solzhenitsyn was a hero uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, he was a war hero who was a prisoner of war and for the indignity of being captured. When the prisoners of war went back to Russia, they ended up in the gulags. They ended up in, uh, in prison camps uh, with the most horrendous things being inflicted against them. And Solzhenitsyn uh, went through an experience at the time. Now, you could imagine this, that you would think that a man in his position would think, me good, I've done nothing wrong. I just found myself here from the wrong circumstance of being captured in war. And those guards out there and the people behind the guards, so good, bad. Solzhenitsyn came to a realisation that he recorded in a memoir that he wrote. He said, if it was only so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. If Solzhenitsyn had said to Jesus, well, he wouldn't have because he recognised exactly the truth of what Jesus said. He said there's no difference between the guards and the prisoners. All need to repent or they will perish. We have trouble with this because I think we've lost the category of sin from our society. It's always someone else. A guy called the name Christian Smith did uh, some interesting research in the States about the younger generation. And he asked them, among other things, about morality and about how they work out what's right and what's wrong. And this is one of his observations. He said, many, if not most, emerging adults tend to define what is wrong or immoral as extreme cases. Murderers, rapists and bank robbers being almost archetypal representations of what or who is immoral. This has the agreeable effect of defining most emerging adults as not immoral and as never doing anything of questionable morality. It's only the bad people. It's not nice people like me. We have a trouble with this category. We've removed the moral dimension out of our life. It's only there in extreme cases. And our sin has become excusable. There's a phrase out there amongst a younger generation. They talk about being perfectly imperfect. You know, in your, all your imperfections, you are perfect. So own them. You're lovable. You're perfect in your imperfection. And we tend to compare ourselves to others. You know, I'm not perfect. Okay, I'm happy with that. But Simon, man, you should see what he does, you know? And he probably sits there and goes, yeah, but Helen, you know, oh, man, terrible. Okay, and Helen would say Paul, and Paul just needs to look next door at his wife. And uh, <laughs> Sorry, I apologise to all of you. Uh, you can look down on me because you'd never do to me what I just did to you. Um, but we always do it, don't we? It's always somewhere else. We've lost the category of sin. 
And that's because most of us here are pretty good people. But you know what? Sin at its heart is not breaking rules. Sin at its heart is not some random law that you happen to transgress. Sin at its heart is not giving God his just deserts, what he deserves, glory, honour, obedience, love, respect. Sin at its heart is glory theft. So we can sometimes do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Let me use an illustration. It's kind of like a man, and I'm going to pick on guys here, but you could flip the genders. I'm not being, not looking down on us men, but sorry. But um, a man who is 100% faithful, who is loving, who is remembering uh, birthdays and anniversaries and all this sort of stuff to his mistress and not his wife. You see it? The one to whom he owes that he will not give. But the one for whom he doesn't owe, he gives everything to. You see how we get it wrong. Sometimes our best things are not done for God's glory, they're done for our glory. And so though they're good things in and of themselves, at their heart, they are robbing God. Do we have a category of sin that is simply too small? Jesus tells us that unless we repent, we likewise will perish. And it's not something we can put off. We need to recognize the urgency. Jesus tells a little parable, a little figurative story. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And when he went to look for fruit, but did not find any, So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Simple little story. The fig tree, that represents Israel. The man who owns the vineyard, that's God. The guy who looks after the vineyard, that's Jesus. Went to the fig tree, God goes to his people looking for fruit, finds none. Now what's the purpose of a fig tree? Ultimately to produce figs, yes? Okay. What was the purpose for God's people? They were to be a light to the nations. They were meant to show God's glory in front of the world and draw people to him. But Paul, the apostle, speaks in Romans 2, quoting the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Went looking for fruit and found none. John the Baptist had warned them. He said, the axe is at the root of the tree It is waiting for judgment. Jesus here is echoing that warning. And if you know history, you'll know that in 70 BC, the Emperor Titus 
conquered Jerusalem, destroyed it, enslaved or killed its population. This is the Titus Arch in Rome, where you can see the memory, the commemoration of that victory, the acknowledgement that there was but a little time before judgment fell. But Jesus doesn't warn just Israel. He warns us. He tells us that God is patient. And Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples in chapter 3 of his second letter, he tells us that God does not see things as we see things, that his patience is not limitless. A thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years, but the day will come. The clock is ticking and time will run out. And sometimes that judgment falls within history. Read the book of Revelation, where Jesus warns his people that they need to repent or as a church in Ephesus, they will cease to exist. He warns them. But at the very least, that judgment will fall at the end where all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Jesus is telling us, There is time, but you don't know how much. We need to recognize the urgency. We need to turn back to God and we need to produce fruit. What is the fruit? The fruit is the life of discipleship that Jesus lays out. The fruit is the character of the disciple. Love, joy, peace, faith, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. Our repentance needs to be real. It needs to be heartfelt. Which brings us to our last point. Because repentance is something that maybe we don't get. Because repentance is more than being sorry. Repentance is much more than being sorry. Sometimes you can be sorry that you were caught. Sometimes you can be sorry for the consequences Sometimes you can be sorry, but totally unrepentant. Paul talked to the church in Corinth and he actually spoke about a godly sorrow that produces repentance and a worldly sorrow that produces death. You can have sorrow and two vastly different results, life and death. So I want to spend the last couple of minutes just talking through what the Bible actually says about repentance and what we can learn from this passage. Firstly, we need to recognise that sin must be acknowledged. If you don't see that you've got anything that you need to be forgiven from, you're not going to repent of anything. You'll go through the motions. There might be a prayer on the screen. You might read that out. But it never hits home. It never hits home because you think, It's actually not me, it's them. It's a good thing they're praying this prayer, you know, but actually I'm okay. The teaching from today tells us that you're not okay, that none of us are okay. None of us can stand before God without repentance. We need to acknowledge God as God and unless we acknowledge our culpability, the fact that we are guilty as charged, it will never be more than superficial. You know, the kid that's dragged up, they've just 
slugged their brother or their sister something. You say sorry. I'm sorry. And he's like, yeah, about this much. Not at all. Not at all. We can sometimes treat God like that. But unless we actually see that sin is real, we will not repent. We need to actually hate the sin. Do we see sin the way that God sees sin? Going back to our first point, do we, do we understand Jesus when he says, I have come to bring judgment and I wish it had fallen? Do we actually see that our sin, the sin that characterises our city, our country, our world. Do we look at that and say, I long for God to set that right, recognising the offence that it is, recognising that sometimes we do our best things for someone other than God, that we rob him of glory, that we do not give him love, that we do not show him honour. We need to hate the sin. We need to see it as Jesus sees it, as God sees it. And we need to see that sin is not just the things we do with others. But like David in Psalm 51, after he'd murdered a man and committed adultery with his wife, says to God, against you only have I sinned. Now, David wasn't washing his hand of Uriah and Bathsheba. But he was recognising that fundamentally his sin was against the one who loved and had made those people. Do we hate our sin? We need to see what forgiveness costs because forgiveness always costs. Okay? I bought a new car, or not a new car, a new second-hand car a while ago. Uh, And I can remember the moment when I got out of the car and someone else got out of the car next to me and banged the door straight in and there was a little ding in the door. Okay, what do I do? Okay, oh, don't worry about it. But I bore the cost because I keep looking at that ding in the door. I bear the cost. I remember when one of my children drove that very same car into a pole at the aquatic centre. Don't worry about it. I bear the cost. I bear the cost. That's a much bigger ding. Okay, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Forgiveness is never free. Someone always pays. And for us to be forgiven, God himself pays. Jesus said in verse 50, of chapter 12 he says i have a baptism to undergo and what constraint literally what distress i am under until it is completed jesus saw what was coming and it it distressed him deeply the water baptism had already happened at this point so he's not talking about that what he's talking about is a baptism of suffering of wounds of agony, of blood, and of death. He's talking about the baptism 
of the cross. And he looked forward and he said, what distress I am under. Because he knew at that point he would bear judgment. Forgiveness always costs. Always costs. So once we have acknowledged the sin, once we have hated the sin, once we have acknowledged what the cost of forgiveness, we come before God confessing our sin. Recognising that there's a debt that we cannot pay. That the accuser that's dragging us before the judge, he's 100% right. We are totally guilty. And we could not discharge that debt to the very last penny if we tried in eternity. We cannot pay the debt. But Christ has. And we can receive that through faith through trust, through putting out our hands and receiving what is freely offered by God's grace. And if we are in Christ now, we can come to God with confidence, knowing that Christ's blood has paid the price. We confess our sins. And then simply, we stop. You turn away from the thing. You turn away and you turn back to God. That is what repentance is, and you produce good fruit. Now, I was talking about, at the front, about how the vertical affects the horizontal. Let me explain this briefly. Once we know that although we are guilty, we can be forgiven by God. Once we know that his love will never be taken that we will never face the justice that we deserve. Once we are secure in his grace, it actually elects us, it lets us acknowledge that we are not perfect. It lets us go to others and say, I've stuffed up, without it shattering the core of who we are. Because if we build ourselves on our performance, I'm a good person, and that's a lot of us, in our society, we're out there, we build, we're good people. But if that's the core of our identity, it means it's really hard to face up to the facts that we get it wrong. But what Jesus is saying is you're not a good person, but you're a loved person. You're a forgiven person. You're a saved person. You're a person who by his grace is being transformed into the likeness of Christ once you live in that identity, which comes to us through repentance and faith, it lets us go to our friends and say, I've been a real rubbish friend. I've said things, I've done things I shouldn't have done. Will you forgive me? Because we are secure in Christ. And no matter what they say, no matter what response they have, they cannot touch what Christ has said. Do you see how it works? The forgiveness we have that comes through repentance and faith, it overflows in our relationships. And as we live in that, that grace that we find in the cross, it has the power to transform everything around us. Now, it's time to finish.
I've gone a bit long. Please forgive me. But... (laughs) I said sorry is not the hardest word. Can I tell you what the hardest word is? And maybe some of you need to hear this this morning. The hardest word would be the condemnation of the judge. The one who says, depart from me. I never knew you. If that's you, don't leave this morning without having had a chat. Come find me, find the people around you, find the person you came with and ask, how can I be set right with God? Because Jesus warns us, the clock is ticking. The time is short and judgment is coming. But by his grace, we know we can face it because he has stood in our place and we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard word. It blows many of our nice ideas of Jesus it blows them away a Jesus who who longs to bring judgment but father we know that he longs to bring judgment because he sees the offense that sin is he sees the harm it brings in each of our lives and across the globe and father He burned with a desire to set that straight. Father, we thank you that on the cross, he bore that judgment. And when he returns, he will bring it to its conclusion. He will set all things straight and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. And in his name we pray. Amen.